Hello Crit listeners, this is Ollie. Uh, just a note and an apology before we start the episode. The audio quality on my mic is not the best in this episode. We had a hiccup, um, GarageBand recorded everything and then managed to delete the sound file. So, you know, uh, l- looking at you, Apple. Um, so apologies about that. Um, the audio you'll hear from me is actually the audio that was picked up by India's mic. So India sounds great. I sound acceptable. Sorry, it's it's beyond our control and I hope it doesn't spoil your enjoyment too much. Normal service resumed next month. Hello and welcome to this June episode of The Crit. I'm one of your hosts, Ollie Stratford. I'm joined by my co-host, India Block, and both of us are June babies. We're Geminis. That's true. Gemini season is upon us, the best time of year. Big birthday month for The mm-hmm. Crit. Did you have a nice birthday? Oh, I know what you did for your birthday. It's really good. Yeah, no, I went to see Beyonce for my birthday, so it was amazing. I didn't do anything that exciting for my birthday. I uh, think I just potted around. Pottering is also good. I mean, I technically saw Beyonce the night before my birthday, so my actual birthday was spent being more low-key, going to museums. You're more up on astrology than me. What's the what's the reputation of Gemini's? We are the Zodiac's natural journalists. Oh! Yep, we are, because we love information gathering, and we're an air sign, so we love to float around and socialise. What does that mean, an air sign? Look, what, what does that... That we're kind of... <laughs> Buoyant. I've got too deep, and we've exhausted information. No, I'm no. I'm just aware that producer Evie is um, astrology agnostic, and I don't want to sound too woo here and undercut my professionality. I think think very is astrology atheist. Would that be anti astrology? An anti, a hater. But producer Evie is a strong woman of science. Yeah, that's true. She has a reputation to protect. But June has brought some interesting pieces of design news. Uh, Following that, we have an interview with Alona Gaynor, fantastic designer, who's going to be speaking about their new project, Looking at Sleep. So um, do stick around, but on with the episode. So our first story for this month, I think a few surprises here, probably was the biggest, uh, certainly the biggest industrial design and tech news of the month, which was the news that Apple had finally announced its venture into AR and VR, the Apple Vision Pro. So this is a kind of augmented reality headset that's been um, a long time coming. I, I think this has been rumoured for for months, maybe. Years, I think. They're kind of the final entrant into the market. We've already had the other big tech players bring in their own attempts. There was the Google Glass. I mean, that was years ago, a decade ago that came in. Yeah, early early 2010s. Mm-hmm. I, I think it sort of flitted in and out, didn't it? There was versions and then it would all go quiet for a while, then they'd try another version. Uh, Meta had their Ray-Ban stories. Yeah. Meta literally renamed itself to uh, tackle this idea of the metaverse. <laughs> yeah, whereas the Vision Pro doesn't seem to be a, a metaverse product. I don't think they mentioned metaverse 
the metaverse once, did they? Well, they don't mention metaverse, but I suppose it's that ambiguity of what you define as metaverse. So no, it's different to Mark Zuckerberg's idea of the metaverse kind of being a destination you go to um, and and take selfies with the Eiffel Tower. Um, But I, I suppose if you think of the metaverse as just some kind of interface between physical and digital and different ways of interacting with digital space it if it's not metaverse it's certainly metaverse adjacent i think i think the phrase they use is spatial computing um i see because metaverse has kind of become a polluted brand hasn't it i think it's got that element of ridiculousness about it now so i wonder if it i presume it's a very deliberate decision not to conjure any images of the metaverse with this. Yeah, they're definitely aiming for a different market when they unveiled the device at the 2023 Worldwide Developers Conference on June 5th. Um, I think they made it quite clear that this is a digital services product. This is something to augment your daily life, uh, especially for work, Mm. was the impression I got. It's about taking calls it's about being able to call up plans or recipes if you're at home maybe enjoying home videos enjoying watching films but it's about very much being able to interact with existing digital products in a more intuitive way rather than entering some kind of alternate dimension or traveling or Mm. gaming yeah, a little bit more grounded. And it's been interesting because, as you say, so many companies have tried to make metaverse happen. <laughs> and I think there is this sense of this is almost a landmark moment for that kind of technology. If the Vision Pro or its successors over the next few years don't make this work, don't make VR and AR technology and interfaces a, a part of daily life, it it's difficult to see who is going to who is going to make a success of that technology um but the the announcement i think was more or less what everyone expected right this had been rumored that this was going to be released in june and then there was a new york times article in march um which set out the rumors that this product was coming and also that it was heavily contested within Apple. Um, According to that article, at least, a lot of Apple employees not on board with this and not sure it's the right path to take. But I I looked back through that article uh, ahead of this podcast and it it was pretty accurate in what it said. You know, it it pinned down that this was going to be goggle-like headsets, all of the functionalities it would have. So this wasn't a surprise you know it wasn't like apple producing a product no one knew they were working on or had any idea that was coming this was culmination of a a, a long period of speculation pretty accurate speculation yeah no this wasn't a beyonce style lemonade drop that came totally out of the left field but i do think it's a very interesting shift around the typology all of the previous ar devices uh have gone down that kind of glasses route which has opened them up to a lot of privacy concerns I hate the glasses well they're just a bit creepy aren't they're they very creepy, yeah I, I, so apple apple's vision pro they are quite ski goggle i suppose the closest thing you could describe it to technology wise would be an oculus rift headset Something like but that, they yeah. and you can't see your face through the ski goggles 
but there is a projection of your eyes that plays while you're in it. So it's not that you look like you're wearing this kind of alien headset. Mm -hmm. Um, You will still give the impression that people could see your face through it, even if they're not actually seeing your face. I mean, we'll we'll dig into that technology in a minute. I I guess just on the difference between those glasses and the the goggles, uh, I've seen online the goggles get a lot of flack. People think it's weird and sort of big and uh, quite strange strapping into it. I much prefer it to the glasses. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't decided yet, and it's hard to say until you've actually tried it whether you like something or not. But just on the initial level, I, I far prefer this goggles idea to the glasses. I think for the exact reasons you flag up, if you're wearing glasses, there's all those concerns about privacy, right? What's being recorded? What's that person seeing? They're very innocuous, a lot of those glasses. The Ray-Ban Meta ones in particular, they they just look like Wayfarer glasses. And I think if you are going to have this kind of technology that, you know, is blending physical and digital reality, that's um, recording, that has cameras, that's showing you very different things, it should be very transparent when you're using it. Um, Mm. So, yeah, they they are quite big. You know, you're wearing this big goggle headset, but I kind of think that's the right move for this kind of tech. I think it should be obvious if someone is using that sort of thing. I I don't think it should be disguised or or woven in with an accessory that's very everyday. Yeah, and I think that Apple have really pitched this well because in the past 10 years, our understanding of how much privacy you are allowed in public spaces has really shifted. Um, You kind of are aware that you could be being filmed at all times. People whip out their iPhones every time they see something happening, even in kind of tragedies and disasters. People have this instinct now to film things. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very smart that they've kind of changed the game after putting a smartphone in everyone's pocket apple is now saying here's some technology that isn't meant to be seamless it will be very obvious when someone's using it is it and it's you have to be plugged in while you're using it right or does it charge yeah no it it does have to be plugged in I i think you can plug into a mains or else it has this kind of external battery pack which i think can give you a couple of hours you can charge that up which i mean is an interesting thing in itself i I wonder how Steve Jobs would have felt, for instance, about an Apple product having to have this external battery. It's um, maybe a friction point. And and I think that that captures something which is quite interesting about the Vision Pro. Of all the Apple products I can remember, this feels like the one that is most targeted at early adopters only, or, or is sort of a first step and maybe slicker, more mass market versions will come later because this is quite expensive i think it's what about three and a half grand thousand dollars that that's heavy yeah i mean i can see this becoming a device that is used in offices i think actually i can see architects getting into it i can see it becoming a useful tool for selling spaces or designs to clients Mm -hmm. i can see this being adopted first as a quite commercial thing yeah, and yeah. then eventually it will trickle down to everyday life or wealthy people who want to have a different movie viewing experience or who maybe travel a lot and then it could also almost be like an expensive toy but this is clearly not an iPhone or a laptop that no. everyone is going to have and they 
a long way off that. Mm. I think. Yeah, and 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 that's that's kind of interesting because it's the technology. You know, le- leaving aside is AR or VR good. The technology seems to be quite impressively done from what I've read. The journalists who maybe have tried it out say. It works very well. It has this nice sort of digital crown. You can just twizzle and that increases or reduces the amount of immersion you get. That's kind of clever. That's a nice little interface thing. And I wonder in part if it's so expensive because they've really almost thrown the kitchen sink at it in terms of the tech. It seems a lot more advanced than other AR systems out there, which are considerably cheaper. And... I wonder if that almost is because it's a kind of, this has to go well. Because I think so many AR experiences people have talked about, it's going to be amazing, it's going to be incredible, it's the future. And then the result is really underwhelming and crap. Like, I mean, we all laughed a lot at that Mark Zuckerberg in the metaverse. It looked <laughs> so awful, right? It kind of, for the future, you went, oh, the future looks rubbish. So I, I wonder if Apple has that sense of, if this is going to work... It does have to be slick and it has to be impressive and it has to be technologically cutting edge. And so maybe maybe they think that then justifies doing this more premium, quite expensive, quite limited market, but at least maybe the experience is good. And then that buys you time uh, and sort of grace to develop something more mass market. Mm, and because they sound like they've got the gesture control elements down really well, all of the initial reviews, everyone's been very impressed by the fact that you can kind of scroll and pinch and zoom by sort of moving your hands about in the space, which again is another technology that's not entirely new, but um you know, Nintendo with their Wii controllers, that was a huge thing that, that came out that you could kind of grasp things in your hands. Open and then gaming to a, a lot more people than would normally be in it as well, which is worth saying. Yeah, but then that hasn't really caught on in a way, but I feel that Apple coming in with a headset that can also, I mean, I assume it's monitoring exactly where your hands are in real time and then to be able to read that gesture i mean that it was the... your eyes as well doesn't it and where they're looking and things like that it, it all sounds quite impressive yeah when you consider how things like the scroll and the swipe were sort of these haptic elements of technology and these gesture languages that we've developed that was apple with the mm-hmm. phone i think it is impressive that they have brought that over into this technology even though it seems kind of discongruous with the rest of their line I can see that kind of thread of Appleness. yeah I, I think technologically it does feel quite Apple and feels impressive I, I guess the issue I have is I'm still I'm still quite undecided personally I don't hugely like the idea of AR and VR I'm, I'm not I, I find the idea of being strapped into these devices which have cameras and all of this slightly worrying it's it's not something I instinctively would want to happen and I suppose for me to want to adopt AR or VR I would have to really clearly see a benefit to it right if you're going to say yeah okay I'll, I'll, I'll wear this headset which is recording and which is monitoring me and that just by its nature is a slightly intrusive thing regardless of what's happening with your data or so on 
But Ollie, you're um, wearing an Apple Watch. Because that that's where I draw the line. I don't want my heart rate and my health stats being tracked by Apple. And I I was I was like nodding along. I was nodding along like, yes, actually maybe maybe they are going to be taking all that retinal data and using it for nefarious purposes. But you are you are currently broadcasting yeah, yeah. all of your vital signs um, back to Apple HQ. I so <laughs> I, I very much lost the match, but I think I can restore uh, restore some credibility. Um, I, I don't huge. The reason I have the watch is I really like its running capability. Right, mm-hmm. I get something out of it. I feel very uneasy about having it on a lot of the time and don't like that. But I think okay, it's worth it for the trade off because I, I do like that sort of use for a particular sport. I like. I guess the trouble I have with the Vision Pro at the moment is I'm not entirely clear who it's for or what it's doing or what it's making better. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed your reflections upon it being used in a more professional context, definitely. And maybe, maybe that is where it is. But for instance, this, this description of it in terms of spatial computing and very much a lot of the displays being about, you know, emails, managing your browser, past me things like, I don't know if I want or need a super swishy new way to answer my emails. Like I, it feels as if it maybe doesn't yet have that uh, raison d'etre, possibly. Like I, I, I'm not sure I need all of that technology to be applied to, okay, very cleverly, but applied to functions which, you know, they're just like work functions and they kind of operate as they fine as they are so that's the slight thing I have around it yeah my first thought was that I I was like oh I would like to watch a movie with these goggles Mm -hmm. but then I tend to do things while I'm watching tv I would tend to knit or sew or do some kind of chores and I feel that the goggles would impede any sort of other activity you'd be sitting Mm -hmm. there like the humans in Wall-E just kind of plugged in and motionless and unable to even, you know, watch a film with someone else because... I really like that you call him Wally. Wally! Sounds really continental. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I know what you mean. I, for instance, I, I watched Avatar Way of Water last night and I did so many things while that was on. Well, I hated it. Well, you had three I, hours to film. So, so much time to film. Such a boring movie. And yeah, I did, I did a lot of things. So yeah, it, you know, but I, I suppose this is the question around these technologies, mm-hmm. right? At the moment, the critique that gets thrown at them is it's a sort of solution in, in search of a problem I suppose and I, I guess if if anything is going to solve that maybe maybe it will be Vision Pro maybe they'll find a compelling use for this technology uh, and suddenly AR and VR will feel a lot clearer to, to me and to most people but I think now and this doesn't even come out until next year there remain questions as to what this is for and whether whether it's something we actually want Yeah, I think you raise a really interesting issue that will segue us very neatly into our next topic, that this looks like a very high definition way to use your emails, which I don't want. I don't want to be checking my emails all the time. However, emails are a big theme of this issue. They are. Uh, So I 
went to a conference last week, uh, the Intuit MailChimp conference, and during the course of that, it was announced that MailChimp is currently working on an exhibition for London's Design Museum. I think it's going to open in September 2023. And the exhibition is going to be about email. Uh, it promises to tackle the cultural power of email, its origins and where it's going with advancements in technology. How, uh, like, first opinion? Well, when you first came back and told me that this was going to be the theme I was like oh this sounds like you know a busman's holiday as far as I'm concerned I enjoy my free time not thinking about emails um I like to draw quite strict boundaries about when I check my emails but then I was thinking well I have such strong opinions on emails and I am very intrigued by how just so rapidly and over you know my adult lifetime email has changed from this very, uh, you know, almost lo- not like long form, but almost a slow communication. People adopted it like a letter writing yeah, yeah, form. Yeah. And now it's so densely woven into our lives. Um, I know that the the introduction of Gmail, that invention from Google, just radically changed the landscape because suddenly everyone had inbox space whereas Mm. before you had a limited inbox you could only be getting emails in emails out you couldn't thread emails the way we do now I think actually there's been so much rapid design shift I I'm really interested the communication is very different based within the email based on what device you're sending it from Mm. right you know an email someone has sent from their laptop or computer I think reads very differently and you have different expectations of one sent from a phone like personally I think this show is a really really good idea in principle (laughs) I, I think if you're looking if you're looking around and saying what technologies have been genuinely transformational for society which have changed the way people work, the way they interact with one another, the way they talk, um, and which are so designed, which have so many design considerations around them. Like, email would be top of the list? Surely. I mean, maybe like the internet period, but email is such a good topic. If If you actually think design matters and has an impact on how we live, then yeah, look at email. Um, it, it's a show that should definitely be told. But, (laughs) okay, well, like, two things. One, I think this is an issue a lot of design shows have now, right? People identify really good topics where design is actually shaping people's lives, but they're very difficult to do in a show format because they're normally around digital culture or sort of the digital artefacts which don't necessarily lend themselves to display you know it's old hat but the display of objects sort of works because that's nice going to see them you can appreciate them more you don't really want to go to um exhibition to see to look at your inbox yeah i'm i'm really curious as to how the curatorial curatorial team will tackle this because it's a fabulous topic but if i was going to tackle it i would be like oh a non-fiction book or a documentary yeah. or a podcast series but when you have to have physical objects I mean or, maybe or some kind of physical display some way of physicalizing it even if not yeah objects. I mean it'd be fun if they had a kind of interactive set from you've got mail 
parts <laughs> where you can you can have like a little experience of emailing Tom Hanks or I'm trying to think of like it's, uh, do you know it's very because for a movie that is not very good you uh, got mail occupies a not big very part good. of the I think about you've got mail a lot I don't think it's a good film but I think it's very like present culturally why don't you think it's a good film it's like it's trying to get the band back together for Sleepless in Seattle, but it's not as good. It's quite prescient, though. It foretold the rise of Amazon and the destruction of independent bookshops. It foretold catfishing. Yeah, it did do. Yeah, that's true. Maybe it's a masterpiece. I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a movie buff by any stretch, but I only watched it for the first time as an adult. And I, I was really impressed by it. Also, it's a rom-com. We don't get rom-coms like that anymore. We're going wildly off topic, but I think it is yeah. the biggest... Our, our listeners <laughs> want to hear about you've got mail in But I'm trying to think of other cultural touchstones that may contain artefacts from emails. Because they can't just print out emails, because we all know that's bad. <laughs> no one, no one's allowed to print out emails anymore. I mean, like, if you were going to do this show and do it well... I feel as if one way you could get around this problem and I think would be interesting would be give a group of designers or artists a decent budget to go away and create work that address email in some way, that interact with it, which may be, you know, perhaps it's a spatial installation, maybe it's um, a digital artwork or something. I I think that's a way you could bring it to life. Um, and, and I would love to see that show. Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely adore going to see a show where different interesting artists and designers have reflected on this medium and produced work off the back of it. But I, I think this isn't what this show is going to... I mean, have to say, very few details at the moment, so full apologies to the MailChimp if, um, if that is what they have planned. Or maybe um, we're giving them some free ideas. But yeah, you're right. I mean, we also have little to base this off because the design museum originally had a plan in 2022 to do a kind of similar topic they were going to do streaming with netflix and that never materialized but i think this is an issue because i don't think a museum is going to do a show on email or streaming or whatever necessarily or lots of museums wouldn't unless they had some kind of corporate sponsorship Mm. but then that's a real problem because you know, in some ways it's good to have an industry player involved in an exhibition, but MailChimp is curating this show. MailChimp is providing the funding for it. Now, again, apologies if they, if they, <laughs> if they completely defy this, but you would have thought that is going to be something of a corporate celebration of MailChimp, right? That's probably not going to be an expansive overview of the field, looking at all these different things. You know, it's not going to be, I suspect giving a bunch of interesting designers money to go off and produce independent work. And I, I just think it's really challenging because you have these topics in design where you think, that could be a great show, that could be fabulous, or that's really important. But actually making it into an exhibition and making it into an engaging exhibition and making it into a balanced exhibition, there aren't so many channels open to that or, or funding options for that. Mm, and I think, I mean, full disclosure, we run our newsletter input-output through MailChimp and it's very useful software. But yeah, I mean, MailChimp is fully pro-email. That is their entire business model is getting you to write an email that you can send out en masse. Also, the interesting thing is when they've had sponsors in the past, I can see why it's useful 
not just in monetary terms, but in, in access to an archive. So, you know, when they had the Cartier show at the Design Museum, that meant that they had really rare watches there. Um, the Van Cleef and Arpels one, I think they had. So when you have a precious archive of objects that are hard to access, hard to insure because they're valuable, I can see why a partnership is useful. But email, there's no kind of thing to access. There's no, no. I can't think of digital assets or, you know, there's no one person who we can credit with the design of email who would be a big name to get for the show yeah it's, it's one of those sort of diffuse things which i think mm. is over time but there's there's also differences between shows you know you're right some some partnerships can be really impressive but i, I think with this mailchimp one for instance the design museum staff <laughs> that's that the design museum staff are not involved in the curation. I think it's purely a Netflix. Sorry, not Netflix. Yeah, Netflix are doing. <laughs> oh wait, so <laughs> they don't. It's yeah, Mailchimp is, is using Mailchimp the... are providing the curation. I think oh. the Design Museum is the venue, and this is another. This is another thing museums have to grapple with, right? I think museums often do shows like that because funding is important and they they need to bring money in. But it's not always clear, I think, to, to someone from the outside. I mean, we work in the press and it's not totally clear to us. Um, who is involved in which show? Where, do the, where does the museum's involvement begin and where does it end? How, to what extent has the sponsor or the organiser controlled the content? These things could maybe be a little bit clearer or could be communicated more clearly. And then I think people know where they stand with that show better as well, what to expect from it. Um, how to engage with it. Uh, but a bre- uh, I have to say, a, a little bit of a coda to this. Well, we have another disclosure to make. Yeah, which um, all of the problems <laughs> in museums we've just discussed will soon be on in the in-tray of Desenio's founder, Johanna Argerman-Ross, who this week has been announced as the Design Museum's new chief curator. Whoop, whoop. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, are, we are clearly biased, uh, both in Johanna's favour and also in terms of knowing all the skeletons in her closet. Um, <laughs> but we're obviously very excited uh, and think she'll do a really excellent job in that, uh, in that role, which is open because the current incumbent, Justin McGurk, is moving over to... Um, focus exclusively on a future observatory at the museum, which is also an exciting opportunity. So uh, congratulations to Justin too. Yeah, no, it's it's very exciting. Um, there's, you know, she's going to be in the top job, but there's a huge team behind the scenes that she's going to be linking up with, much as, uh, you know, there's a team behind Desenio that gets everything done. Yeah, yeah, which is important because I, th- I think often the person in the hot seat ends up getting a lot of the credit and sort of attention focuses on them. But it's kind of not an accurate reflection of how departments work or how things come together. So, yeah, I mean, we're excited for Johanna. I'm sure she'll do an excellent job. But I think um, a shout out to the curatorial team already there who do who do excellent work. And that's Priya Kanchandani, Rebecca Lewin, Tom Wilson, Esme Hawes, Fiona Mackey, Tia Deabai, Rachel Hayek and Hadil El-Tayeb, um, not to mention the many other people there who 
you know, work on programming, the exhibitions team, interpretation, and all the multiple other fields in, an, in a museum that actually make the exhibitions happen and, and help them run smoothly, but who, who don't get that um, credit which they perhaps uh, deserve. Yeah, so another story that is uh, perhaps a little bit more in the physical realm, although there is still a tech element. Uh, This is Couch in an Envelope. It's a conceptual project from Space 10. Uh, That is, you know, IKEA's dedicated research laboratory, which is based in Denmark, and they have created a lightweight, portable, and uh, importantly, sustainable flatpack sofa. And the prototype is currently on display at their Space 10 exhibition, Design in the Age of AI. Can I ask, does it mm. annoy you when things call themselves a laboratory that aren't a laboratory? Like, it happens quite a lot in design. Something will be called a laboratory. And I just don't, I think you can't be unless you've got test tubes and Bunsen burners and stuff. I actually quite like this uh, this modish fad for um, giving yourself a bit of a fancy name. And actually, after our panel discussion at Benet the other week um I shout out to Benet um I think we should actually stop calling our office the office and call it a studio but we could even call it a laboratory what about the designer laboratory would you not feel more excited coming into work every day being like goodbye honey I'm off to the lab Honey, honey, be my cat. Yes, yes. Eddie hands you your packed lunch and a paper bag. (laughs) I find it really affected. I like, it's just like, I have no problem with something being an office. (laughs) Let offices be offices, damn it. Oh no, I'm I'm ready to rebrand the office. Yeah, okay, so, but this is so... I suppose laboratory sums up that they're doing exciting experimental work. So... So, so tell me more about this this sofa. Like, this is a flat pack. You know, sounds sounds IKEA flat pack sofa. What's the what's the deal? Yeah. So there's several different threads here, and one is, um, I mean, I don't know how you got to work this morning, but I walked in and I noticed at least two old sofas on the curb. Yeah, yeah. You see like them you see them everywhere. People just throw out a sofa. They're big. They're bulky. Um, and often really hard to take apart, not just to move, but if you want to recycle them, all of the foam that makes them comfy to sit on has been bonded to the frame. And I think you done a piece for Disegno just before I arrived, didn't you? The uh, What Lies Beneath? From... Yeah, we did. We worked with um, Daniel Schofield, mm. the designer, and that was specifically looking at upholstery and some of the alternatives around there, you know, like natural upholstery as opposed to PU foam and understanding these sort of different bonding techniques. We, we, we also had the designer, Stefan Dietz, was a part of that, who did an interesting project for Magis um, called Costume, I think, which was a sofa where it was specifically designed to be disassembled. So, you know, you didn't have that bonded to try and make it a little bit better for end-of-life disassembly or, or also just repair, you know, getting a new element to replace on a sofa so you don't have to throw the whole thing out. Yeah, so the couch in an envelope is uh, completely sort of everything's separate within it. It will have a frame that's made of aluminium and aluminium famously um, is quite easy to recycle and doesn't lose much of its strength and it's so much 
less energy intensive to recycle aluminium than yeah. it is to mine it fresh out of the Very ground. intensive to produce it originally, but then, yeah, mm-hmm. the recycling is pretty good on the whole. Yeah, and then, um, again, this is a conceptual project. Uh, the bit that makes me wonder whether it's going to be useful on a mass market scale is that instead of plastic padding, they have uh, said that the foam would be made out of mycelium, which is really cool, like yeah, mushroom cool. sofa. Uh, and I assume that makes it light and eco-friendly. I just don't know how you would grow enough mycelium to pad yeah. a whole sofa, let alone a thousand sofas. It's probably also just like a jaded design journalist thing. <laughs> but right, if you hear mycelium, there are so many mycelium projects. Here's the bloody yeah. mushrooms again. Mycelium, seaweed is another one. Uh-huh. Materials that got really, really popular and everyone is excited by, but which don't at present really have industrial capacity yeah and i mean they are tackling a serious problem here um it's like 10 million tons a year ends up in of furniture ends up in landfill in the eu alone we throw out so much furniture and um you know they they looked at this holistically the idea of the envelope is that it can pack down like repack down flat and be carried in a single envelope style carrier which also means that when you move house you don't have to kind of get three of your strongest friends to come over and help you move your sofa um which you know again is quite responsive to the insecure housing market that a lot of us are currently experiencing um yeah i mean i don't don't know about you but I, i think another aspect that ties into this as to why people you know dump their sofa sometimes and don't take them with it is Sofas are really like expensive. Lots of people I know, you, you kind of just inherit a sofa with a place and you probably don't like it that much. You know? <laughs> like, it's an old second-hand one, it's a bit gross. It's not in the fashion that the design world, I think, would love, where you, you buy once and you buy a really good one and you love it and you take it with you. I think just a huge proportion of people can't actually afford it. You have these crappy sofas you, you get off... Um, I'm trying to think what's called free cycle or something. Yeah, like Gumtree or yeah, that your landlord put in yeah, there. It'll do for now, but now I don't, I don't take it with me. I don't particularly like it. And um, and it looks quite groovy as well. It's got this 70s vibe to it. But I would say... There was a tech element. This is the bit that I think makes me roll my eyes a bit, um, but it does raise some interesting topics. So Space 10 collaborated with Panther and Turon. They're a Swiss studio working at the intersections of design, technology and society. And they basically said that in order to come up with this new, you know, mold-breaking design, they used AI, but it didn't go very well. And like, I suppose they're honest about... Uh, so they said, um, we began by inputting prompts, like a couch made for nomadic living into generative AI platforms, runway and mid-journey. At first, it was impossible to escape the typical shape of the couch whenever the prompt couch was used. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they kind of say that, um, you know, this could be really negative for design and that, you know, AI can only take us so far in design innovation before craft. And, I mean, I think, uh, like, kudos to them for being honest because a lot of the, like, deep neural nets that underpin these programs like Midjourney, they've only been trained on pre-existing images from large data sets that have been scraped from the web. So like all of Ikea's 
furniture catalogue is probably already in those data sets. And then all of the like biases and like ideas are pre-programmed in. And they said they eventually came up with better prompts that gave them more of a starting Mm. off point. But I mean, that's just so much creative work gone into writing a prompt where, you know, this couch doesn't look like an AI built it. I'm pretty sure that you could have given like a designer and a pencil and a piece of paper and they could have come up with this Mm. design. Like if you're going to be asking the, you know these like generative AI systems, they're just going to tell you what's already been made. Mm. Um, I should say a shameless bit of self-promotion, but if anyone wants to hear more about these issues, they could head over to our sibling podcast channel to send me podcasts. And we we have an episode about exactly this, uh, AI and how it can be used within design, um, produced in conjunction with the Dutch furniture brand Moy. Um, I think you... Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I said, I think you... Yeah, I, I, I was I like, which podcast? I was like, oh yeah, no, this was me, uh, yeah. recorded live in Milan at Milan, Des- Milan Design Week. Um, yeah, so if, if you want to dig more into that, I would I would say check out that episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, earlier you did a very neat segue. Now it's, uh, now it's <laughs> Time to time. return the favour. Return the favour with interest. This talk of sofas and the ways in which we live with them, disassembly, this sounds very familiar familiar to me because of what we've been working on the last few weeks right yeah actually and when this space 10 story came out I was like oh this is really an interesting piece of synchronicity because uh we have a new edition coming out design review number two uh and this is our one that focuses more on the user so it's 10 reviews of contemporary design uh it is out now and available to all good magazine specialists and um my piece in it is called Building Instructions, and I reviewed a different brand's uh, flat pack furniture. They're called Tact. They're Danish, and they are really interested in sustainability, but they do not involve AI. They want to make pieces that are infinitely repairable. Mm. They started off with chairs, but then they realized that the sofa was this incredibly challenging typology and that, you know, you chairs are kind of easier to maintain and to uh, repair because they don't have this big soft furnishing element often. Whereas the sofa, because you want it to be comfy, also presents this really big challenge. Yeah, no, it's a super interesting piece. (laughs) Congratulations, Um, (laughs) India. Thank you. It passed the laugh test and that's what I want. You were assembling a chair for it, but like you say, the the sort of news hook, I suppose, was that they they developed a flat pack sofa, right? And the the idea, I suppose more than just the sofa, they also had an online online shop where you can buy different elements, right? They've done a lot of work to actually make it easier to replace bits of your furniture. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if a leg gets knackered or or the upholstery is irretrievably stained, um, you you can just replace that rather than having to say, well, okay, this this whole thing is going to have to go to the tip then. Yeah, it's called the Spoke Sofa. It was designed by Anderson and Vol. And yeah, you you buy the whole thing. Um, but then you can also, you know, if you want to change the covers. And the covers are fully washable at 40 degrees, which is great. Um, and you can buy new colours. You can buy a new foam pad. You can buy a new armrest. You can buy a new back. It's meant to be infinitely repairable. And if if you can't 
you know, take it with you, they will take it off your hands mm-hmm. and repurpose it. Well, I think the, the founder of the company says something interesting in your piece at one point, which is, yes, at the moment, the business is selling furniture, but in the future, we, we envisage a big part of our business is going, is going to be repairing it, right? That mm. A big percentage will be people who maybe bought a sofa or chairs a decade ago or 15 years or whatever, coming back and saying, yeah, well, I want to replace this element. And I think if they can make it work, fingers crossed, that would be a really positive development. It, it, you know, if your business is less about just producing new things for the sake of it and, and is it, it becomes economically viable to run a design business that is about maintaining existing pieces, that, that would be fantastic. That would be a really positive step forward. Yeah, and this is something that designers are increasingly concerned with, this idea that they're making so much new stuff and do we need more stuff, which I think ties in quite nicely to one of the other features Mm. that we have in the magazine. Uh, In our object category, we have Waste Not, Want Not, which was written by Nathan Marr. And he... synchronicity between Mm. those two. We didn't plan that necessarily, but there are common themes. Yeah, well, we always find these interesting connections that aren't perhaps apparent when we're at the commissioning stage, but then they become these kind of underpinning themes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this was... um... This was, I, I suppose, nominally a, a review of Generation T, which is a really interesting project by the designer Heli Ongarius for Nymphenberg, um, a porcelain producer in Germany. But it, quite an unusual one. I think if you, normally if you'd, if you'd think of a porcelain project from a designer, you may be imagining they've done a new porcelain dining set. Mm. Um, and I, th- I think something that could be said about Hella is she's an industrial designer par excellence, amazing work, but for the past couple of years has really stepped back from industry, does not do much industrial design at Mm -hmm. all, far more arts practice installation. But she, yeah, I don't don't know if she refers to it as like a a self-imposed retirement or something, (laughs) but almost from the outside looks a little bit like that. Um, but she came out of it to work on this project because Nymphenberg it specifically wasn't about creating new porcelain pieces. She was designing different patterns that could be painted on top of old porcelain, basically. You know, if someone has a set they don't like anymore or don't want, you can take it into Nymphenberg. They'll, they'll put Heller's design on top of it and, and your piece is kind of renewed in a way. You, you have a new porcelain set. And and the idea was, I think, to look a lot more at that. How can you um, revitalise existing design? How can you make it desirable? And Nathan's piece is really beautiful because he he focuses in on this idea of desire, right? What do we desire? Why do we desire it? And and reflects a lot around those issues. Yeah, and our changing attitudes to porcelain and and the pieces that Hella sourced, I you know, Nathan notes that they're from jumble sales and eBay. Yeah. You know, they're not precious auction house pieces. These are the ones she exhibited mm, in Dynamic mm-hmm. Salmon, should say, for the for the launch of this project. They did a, an exhibition installation. Yeah. And actually we have another moment of weird synchronicity. I mean, and kudos to our writer Natalie Kane, who I think kind of days before she was due to file Apple dropped the Vision Pro because we asked her to uh, review the X-Real Air glasses, um, which was a question itself because she had to try and find the only working demo pair available in oh, London. Yeah, so the X-Real Air is um, 
what we're talking about before, really, yeah. The AR glasses designed for you to watch movies, play games on. Um, they launched, I think, back in 2022, but a nightmare to get hold of. Because mm, you should be able to get them with, like, EE in Europe, but... Yeah, you would... I had to ring around a surprising number <laughs> of EE stores to get her access to it. I think she, she worked with a demo pair in Stratford-Westfield in the end. Yeah, a, a complete nightmare, but in a sense that sort of suited the piece because we were interested in AR and VR as a technology, but I think we were almost more interested in looking at um, the sort of hype cycle surrounding those technologies, how we perceive that technology, what do people want from AR and VR, what do we feel we've been promised from it, and what, what is being provided at the moment. So. I mean, Natalie, uh, a long time, uh, a long time Desenio collaborator, a Desenio favourite. Uh, before we don't have favourites. <laughs> right as she was about to get kind of amazing, a, a really good coincidence because it obviously tied in. But a writer's nightmare as well if you have something suddenly happen that changes your piece a bit. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're just so in touch with the zeitgeist. But um, and Natalie raises some really interesting points that I think readers will it'll get people thinking about um the vision pro uh because she makes some excellent points about how valuable these technologies could be for disabled people but they so often fail to take their needs into account Mm -hmm. their accessibility elements are often add-ons that are expensive and very badly designed and i haven't seen anything from the vision pro yet that suggests that this could be a really useful tool for people with kind of uh, disabilities or mobility issues and that seems like a wildly underserved yeah. market in the yeah, tech it's, space it's a good point i mean m- maybe and, and hopefully some things will be said uh, between now and launch in mm. 2024 but you're right that that's very rarely presented as headline news and i think it could be and it's it's one of the reasons i like natalie's piece um She's an excellent curator of, of digital design and, and, and knows the sort of technology very well. But I, I think the focus of, of the piece is less on, on the technology, where, where so often these reviews end up being kind of obsessing over different features. And, and Natalie focuses much more on how people actually interact with these, what they mean for people's lives, how they change it. And uh, actually, in the first issue of Design Reviewed, which is still out, Helen Brown did a, a similarly excellent job with the Apple Watch Ultra and, and again grounded that much more in um, people's experiences and, and how the tech impacts on that rather than looking at the, um, the tech in and of itself. And uh, we, we also had another review where someone did manage to get their hands on the full system, give it a real road test. Um, Anne Morgan, our one and only fact checker, took... Sub-editor Came out from behind the mask. Uh, what a, a little like the design museum, one of those unsung heroes. <laughs> well, we get all the credit. Um, the, the magazine really wouldn't happen without Anne, who does a stunning job on it. So it was nice. This was her Desenu debut as a writer, mm-hmm. as someone who's been behind the scenes making other writers look good <laughs> for a long time. And yeah, so she uh, she reviewed the Sumo washable nappies set, which has been designed by Luisa Karlfeldt. And um, Anne actually has a baby who, who could take it for a test drive. Her youngest daughter, I think, is three months old. 
yeah, probably around that. Yeah, time of and mm-hmm. very, very young. Anyway. Very young to be making her Desenio debut, but uh, <laughs> and um, it's very interesting. So this is a nappy set that is designed to be reusable. It has an mm-hmm. outer shell and then this sort of inner shell and then swappable liners. So the idea is that you don't need to throw the entire thing in the wash or throw the entire thing away. Because that's one of the big problems with um, reusable nappies, right? There's a lot Mm -hmm. of washing, there's expense, there's labour involved with that. So if if you can keep an element of the diaper and just replace an insert, that that would obviously be a huge help. And it's it's an intelligent and interesting piece of design that Louise has done. She started developing it while a student at mm-hmm. Eckhart, and this is quite a long-term project for her, looking a lot into materials, what could work. Um, and I, I think a real learning curve. I think she's just done a hell of a lot of consultation with different people, you know, with, with new parents, with nurses, with, um, you know, like everyone you can think of, really, to try and get this product as good as possible. And it, and it remains ongoing. I think they're refining it all the time. Um, so, yeah, and, and tried out that system. And I think it came to some actually findings I hadn't realised or, or hadn't thought about particularly. I mean, the one about um, one size fits all is, mm. is a super interesting point to think. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's quite difficult to get a nappy that fits a baby and to predict like you know because they come in all shapes and sizes and they grow and um different brands may just fit better and may always fit your child better but be completely unsuitable for someone else yeah and then if they don't fit then you are worried about leaks and that means that you're more tied to the home and then if it's the caregiving parent often you know in the very early years especially uh, or months if you're breastfeeding that often falls to women and then is that tying women to being close to the home but then at the same time the environmental cost of disposable nappies yeah i think one interesting fact from it is a, a disposable uh, nappy i think takes the estimate is around 500 years to break down mm. so the very first uh, disposable nappies from i think the 50s they're, they're still out there they <laughs> are still, still out there absolutely fetid and breaking down yeah and as a neither of us are, are parents i think it was also an eye opener for us and it included what i think is the issue's best joke, That's a good joke. about the 10 poo change but you know we can't to speak to that to, uh, to find out more about the 10 poo <laughs> change and, and what that may be um we won't run through everything we'd love you to pick up a copy of it because it comes out um this week actually mm-hmm. should be hitting uh, new stands but there's a, a fantastic piece by a member of uh, the decennial team lara chapman looking at access to football pitches for uh, women and non-binary players. Uh, I have a look at some soft drinks and soft drink branding, particularly in relation to sugar. Um, Michael David Mitchell does a great, a very funny <laughs> review of Air, the film about the development of uh, the Air Jordan. Uh, Adrian Brown in Chicago looks at Mobile Makers, a scheme which is opening up uh, design education and design skills to young people and more diverse audiences. Uh, Piti Goshimura looks around uh, public toilets in Tokyo, which is a really illuminating piece and our relationship with public toilets. And last but by no means least, uh, Simon Balen-Botero um, does a really great piece looking at design in Colombia and, and sort of changing emphasis within uh, Colombia's design scene and, and also looking at, I think, a wider trend within design of um, how, how perhaps... Um, 
studios can sensitively and respectfully work with indigenous materials and different local communities uh, and produce work off the back of that. A, a, a powerful story. Yeah, it's a jam-packed issue and we'd love you to pick up a copy. Next up, we have um, an interview, which I think last month we referred to as the pudding of the episode. I quite like that. Maybe it should always be enough for pudding. <laughs> this is an interview with uh, Alona Gaynor, who is a fantastic designer. A uh, British designer, works from New York, uh, teaches at the University of Buffalo, and a graduate of the former Design Interactions MA at the RCA. Uh, feel a little bit odd uh, introducing her because Alona is a friend. Uh, it's quite strange trying to uh, summarise her work, but she, she works a lot with film, literature and theatre. Um, and I think from the perspectives of those fields, she often examines quite sort of white collar power structures in society. So she often her projects like really dig into like law or finance or risk management or insurance. Um, and I think fields that are often quite impenetrable and exclusionary, but which have a huge impact on, on people's lives. Um, and, and fields which are all the way also very non-visual, you know, they're just reams of paperwork and like legalese and lawyerese notorious for, for being indecipherable. Uh, and I think Alona is very smart and interesting in terms of how she, she repositions those fields as... Um, forms of artistic research and production. Um, and the reason Elone has come on the crit for this month is she has a new project out, and I, I think a really fascinating one, which is part of the sociability of sleep research platform in Canada. Elone uh, has made a new film, uh, which is called The Labour of Sleep. And it's an eight hour film, which is designed to put you to sleep. And it does that by following a cleaner, preparing a hotel room for a guest. Um, so it's a film that's sort of depicting the labour that goes into creating the perfect sleep environment. Uh, I've seen little bits of it and it, it, it is slightly mesmeric, like you can sort of see how it could put you to sleep. But it's also, it's not relaxing in the slightest. It's quite stressful watching it, which we'll, we'll touch on. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I, I am someone, my relationship to sleep, I think, is quite a pleasant one. I can sleep anywhere, anytime. <laughs> I have no problems. I'm sure I'd watch this and be out like a light, but yeah. you would perhaps skew towards the more insomniac experience. Yeah, I, I have very disrupted sleep. I'm a, a, a multiple waking up each night. Um, and th this film is sort of looking into this depth around sleep and some of its social ramifications. So... It's, it's examining, you know, like labour, changing labour laws and wages in conjunction with sleep, capitalism and sleep and lack of sleep leading to insomnia. Um, I, I think that's as, as good as an introduction as I'm going to get. So uh, over, over to Alona and we'll hear some more. Great. Well, Alona, thank you for joining us on The Crit. It's very nice to see you. I haven't actually seen you in a, a little while. No, no, and thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's always a pleasure uh, to speak with Desenio. Uh, excuse my squeaky, very old chair that I'm sat in. <laughs> oh, well, Desenio's uh, listeners are very interested in chairs. 
<laughs> it's an Eames leather chair, so there we go. Oh, very nice, yeah. So we're here to talk about your new work, The Labour of Sleep, which is being shown, I believe, as part of the sociability of sleep. Um, for someone who has no awareness of this project, hasn't heard of the sociability of sleep, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what it is. Sure. So the sociability of sleep is a project that was funded by a national research grant of Canada between McGill University and the University of Montreal. And so they funded a residency of several artists and researchers and they're sort of interchangeable with research and art. It, it mm. wasn't particularly geared in one way or another, but in addition to that, my, my work was funded by the Wellcome Trust in the UK. And so what the project looks out to do is look at the, the sort of social conditions and context of sleeping. So that could be anything from looking at um, revolutionary acts in relationship to sleep, biological reasons why people can and can't sleep, sort of sleeping states, nightmares, hysteria and things like that. So it's it's a series of kind of uh, lectures, symposiums and a larger research project that will equate to a book by the two curators, um, Alexandra Kaminska and Alana Fain, who are both at McGill and at the University of Montreal. And they're both in communications and English studies, uh, which is interesting. But they've always been interested in sleep, particularly the sort of uh, larger narrative of sleep. Within that, what did you, I mean, I suppose the clue is in the title, but what did you want to address with the labour of sleep? Because like you say, this is this is quite a comprehensive programme and there's any number of ways in which you could take this study of sleep and looking at its different implications. What 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 attracted you to the labour side? Actually, this this work was proposed in 2016, so a long time ago. So the Wellcome Trust funded it. But through personal reasons, I've had to sort of delay the making of the work. Um, and at the time, I was sort of interested in, well, for number one, I haven't slept, I ha wasn't able to sleep for years and a sufferer of insomnia. It's a really clear entryway into sleep. And, you know, everyone sleeps. So it's not like we, we have no experience of this other than those that are put under duress not to sleep, of course. Mm. And I guess labour for me, I mean, it's it somewhat sits in a very reasonable context in that, you know, it's very obvious to understand that labour has a very close relationship with sleep because it's because labour that induces sleep and it's because of labour that we can't sleep. So mm. it's all very easy to to make or, or to um, attach a notion that sleeping is uh, has so many effects on the economy and vice versa uh, and what does it mean and it, you know even to go back to a fairly kind of um, I think it's a fairly well-known book now but wasn't at the time so Jonathan Carreri's 24-7 published by Verso I think if anyone wants to seek that out yeah exactly no I think it is Verso and it's a fairly kind of um, it's a very comprehensive all-rounder in looking at sleep and examines actually a lot of relationships with technology in relationship to sleep. But it, it, it sets forth the very basic notion that, you know, sleep is an uncompromising interruption of the theft of time from us by capitalism, which mm. one could argue, yes, that's incredibly obvious. So, so it is incredibly obvious. So where, what is the take on this? 
And no one ever talks about labour in relationship to sleep. They talk about, um, you know, uh, bio-influences, biometrics, mm. uh, how to sleep better. And I think, you know, without really looking at a cause or a, or a kind of pretext for why sleep is so difficult to some and easier for others, I think labour is... Um, has a long history of looking at this, particularly in relationship to, so for example, um, you know, sleep is a revolutionary act, particularly in the United States, where I currently live in New York. Mm. People of color sleep in galleries as a form of protest. And if you were to ever protest in New York, you can stand and sit, but you absolutely cannot sleep. Oh, really? Yeah, so that, that would be the law, you can't sleep in a protesting state and uh, for example I mean a, a very bizarre idea that you know libraries are open to the public and yet you can do anything in them well other than the obvious things but sleep is one of the things that you absolutely can't do. Yeah it's an interesting thing because you just thought there's all sorts of things you can't do in libraries but I remember reading a book not so long ago and very un very unhelpfully for podcast listeners can't remember the title uh, <laughs> might might have to add that to the show notes and they were speaking to a librarian as part of that and um, within it uh, were talking about um, pornography and they were saying yeah you know a lot of people come to the library and they use it as time and they use the computers to look at porn and they were saying we can't actually stop them doing that 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 is technically permitted we we can ask them not to and explain why and say you know i don't think it's appropriate there are lots of people around but said like technically they are they are within their rights to use it for that reason but similarly i think they mentioned sleep however is something they can't do in that space and that that's kind of an interesting and um i think surprising thing that so much is permitted there and sleep which you'd think of as a very basic thing that's not that's where the line is drawn yeah, and it's it's kind of, it's strange, but also there's a long history of sleeping as a form of disruption because it is the time when you're um, not, not necessarily contributing to the economy, you're not contributing to a space, you're just an object laying still who mm. happens to be alive at the time. So what form did this work take? Because I remember you mentioned it's been a long time in the works. And I remember speaking with you a couple of years back, I think, about this and what you were planning. And I remember you described it to me at the time because I thought it sounded like a great idea where you said like, oh, it's it, thinking it might be like a sitcom for insomniacs. You know, it's something you watch when you can't sleep. And the, fi the final result, you know, there's that film element remains very present which I'm sure you'll explain but the idea has shifted a little I think from what originally you had so what what form has it taken in the end? Just to sort of set the context for the longest time since what what would it have been 11 years old 12 years old I've been watching Frasier whether the listeners might deem that appropriate for a 12 year old to watch or, or maybe that I just didn't <laughs> understand it to some degree uh, have used the television show Frasier to sleep for years. You know, I have a, a you know, when, when streaming platforms didn't exist, I watched it on DVD, um, but there was no way to switch the disc. So it would just constantly be playing the same sort of few episodes. And my family does the exact same thing. And it's, it was something whereby at the time uh, in applying to the Wellcome Trust, I was like, I really can't sleep. And not a lot of my work is about um, 
a public engagement with science. In fact, it's not at all because I, I often associate that with certain kinds of sort of bio art or uh, the kind of speculative design uh, roots into science. And uh, mm. without going into too much about why I find that problematic, I think at the time with the World Contrast, I was like, you know, I really can't sleep. Maybe this is the time to just propose a sleep project. And at the time, there weren't many sleep projects at all. So there was a few kind of sleeping tapes. There's a really good one by Jeff Bridges, which I think is still up. It's just called Sleeping Tapes. And he kind of mm. reads through affirmations mm. to you while you're trying to sleep. And as I did more and more research, of course, the complicated relationship between design and labor would continuously come up. And I often look at the sort of economies or contexts in which the work that I do exists. And this project came up at the sociability of sleep and sort of like, well, what's your social bent on this? You know, I'm really, and it, I sort of became really interested in um, the individuals who work to make service occur seamlessly in manners in which they are absent or have no agencies. And I've a lot of my work's been about that in the past. And I, it sort of made sense to look at the hotel industry because it's the one place at the time and even now that profits from the model of sleep. And so it seemed mm. like a good place to situate what eventually became an eight hour film. And while it's not a typical duration piece, um, like mm. of course the duration pieces of artwork that you see, it essentially presents um, the cleaner of a hotel cleaning one shift for eight hours. And the idea of it is to either, if you're in, an insomniac, hopefully put you to sleep. And if it doesn't, you kind of have to suffer through this kind of capitalist endurance that's that's often um, both a kind of symmetry of being visible and invisible in hotel spaces. So, if you know, if you think about the actual labor of moving items through hotels and and guests is what they want is not necessarily easy. And because it's this constant idea or this narrative of, of what a guest wants and someone having to fulfill it. So even more labor intensive for example, like cleaning and so on, is the less talked about concern of the hotel, you know, heavy lifting, which occurs often within the hotel industry, even describes as the back of the house, you know, this very key idea that it is the backs of these people that this institution that is a hotel is being run on, it becomes a performance, uh, a kind of seamless act of involving. And it just made it just made a lot of sense. So you know, the National Sleep Association suggests it's actually longer for women than it is for men. I think women, it's nine hours, men, it's eight, is the perfect sleeping time. So essentially, the idea is that this film would be screened in a hotel as a kind of context of place. And it starts at midnight and it is screened till 8 a.m. So if you happen to be awake and can't sleep, you could watch this channel and see someone prepare your hotel room. Um, over those eight hours. You've shown me uh, a couple of clips of the film. I haven't had a chance to see the full film. Well, and an interesting thing in itself as to who will see the whole film. It's interesting because I can see how it could potentially put someone to sleep. There's something about it, but I would say it's not restful in the slightest, the elements you've shown me. They're, they're quite unnerving. It's almost actually anxiety-provoking watching this person 
you know, sort of anonymously go through that labour and setting up this hotel room. I'd love to hear about the tone you wanted to strike with it, because I think that's quite an important part of it. So it kind of changed as it was making. So it was starting out, as always, as a kind of cynical look at the hotel industry, as I always would, and sort of looking at the larger system of housekeeping that makes a room presentable, because of course it encapsulates a highly orchestrated, sorry, orchestrated hidden process of management and labour, you know, a kind of a scenario yeah. where work is invisible and surface appearances are paramount to the guests' domestic comfort and well-being. And I suppose when I was watching the footage, so I filmed it over two days, um, one four-hour shift and the second four-hour shift so that uh, the housekeeper could have a break. But it really wasn't easy. I don't know why I naively thought that cleaning for four hours could have been an easy task, but it really wasn't e easy. And it was sort of even more labor intensive than the less talked about concern of sort of cleaning the hotel, but the heavy lifting, of course. And it, listening to her run up and down the stairs, breathing uh, quite frantically and cleaning surfaces that you could almost smell the bleach through the footage. It was really kind of difficult and is certainly, um, unnerving to watch but it was also really unpredictable which I found quite fascinating and you know you'd think that watching a person clean a toilet for eight hours would be really monotonous but somehow was fascinating yeah. and every time I tried to edit and watch huge chunks of it I'm not going to say I would get bored because I would never get bored but I really did get a little sleepy but also it was sort of set to, so I set it to brown noise, which is kind of, um, not only is it a sound that's sort of synonymous with hearing inside your head, you know, if you were to, to cover up your ears, you'd kind of hear a brown noise-like sound. So the, the footage and the point of view is, is meant to be through her eyes to some degree and in her head. So you would hear this brown noise in accompaniment to a mic that was close to very that was placed very close to her mouth so you could hear her sort of frantically struggling to uh, push things and lift things over the time. There was something else I was going to mention in that um, I think what was more sort of startling was when I was doing research in this, you know, looking at which part or of, of what the guest embraces at luxury hotel chains, for example, such as the Four Seasons in, in Hong Kong, New York or Costa Rica, is the marble bathroom, the oversized mirrors and the kind of enormous bathtubs are guaranteed amenities in that kind of luxury hotel market mm. that bring us back into a, an impermanent home and sort of different properties throughout the world that signify a kind of familiarity, which I saw over and over again, but are just mm. different or just different enough to offer enough of a difference so that much of the hotel stay is, is meant to emulate uh, what guests can in a kind of sentient way, latch onto a part of experience that become, that's become kind of integral to globalization and mm. is in a kind of cleaning manual, which there isn't, but all hotel staff are, are sort of trained in the same way. There's a routine that is connected to doing it the fastest way. And for example, mm -hmm. if you have ever stayed in a hotel 
and there's a sign on the door that says, um, I do not wish, I want to be sustainably conscious and I don't want you to clean my room today. That takes money out of the cleaner's pocket, not the hotel's. So they are paid based on the amount of rooms that are, are available to clean at the time. So if you're ever in a hotel, always have it clean because often they're paid per the time and per room that they're cleaning in. I think one of the things that, at least in the elements of the film I've seen, that makes it unnerving and what I think makes it so interesting is there is that, it's very strange for a sense of someone cleaning cleaning a room, there's almost a sense of taboo about it, right? It's seeing something which the system does not want you to see. And almost the more luxurious the hotel, the more privileged the experience, the more unobtrusive the labour that goes into making it that way is meant to be, right? I mean, there's that famous um, David Foster Wallace essay where he's on the cruise ship and whenever he leaves, his cabin is being cleaned and he can't figure out when that is being done or how someone is getting in to do it. And I mean, okay, cruise ships maybe not the height of luxury anymore, but th there's, there's something really interesting about that film about seeing something which purposefully that industry absolutely does not want you to see you know we all know it's happening but there's something almost subversive about being invited into that process and witnessing it yeah that's true and so for example like checking into the four seasons you know during the day it kind of exemplifies this on how um design helps to just sort of disguise the presence of housekeepers and of course the 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 guests do not see what most patrons throughout the world observe as they sort of walk to the elevator. Um, mm. But what sort of absence in the hallways is often really interesting in that the housekeeping cart is often hidden. So the housekeeping sort of use these giant carts sort of in fact, mm. and they're always two different types of carts. So one for the morning service and one for the turndown, but the carts always remain hidden in the service on each floor. So often cleaners would have to run up and down stairs, which is what I witnessed, to go and fetch things so that the guests wouldn't be privy to it. And a sort of, mm. of course, a lack of a cart does, you know, many would contend would even make the guests more, stay more pleasurable, like you said, but sort of navigating around cumbersome carts and seeing sort of stacks of towels and linens uh, put a dent in the pretense of service. And mm. it's, and, and that's sort of, even, even if, you know, to go back to sort of um, baseline Marxist examples of details about how capitalist societies obscure the actualities of labor, sort of relegating commodities to the class of things that we might we might exchange without understanding the work the worker has gone into transpired to mm. making these goods because of course this disconnect from labor as we transform the natural state of commodities into objects and experience that that take on a kind of special coded significance and i i suppose this is in the world of hotels it's it's not really that different and you know since mm. the ineffable nature of work usually functions functions as a kind of back of house dance of service design in which is of course part of a complex system of exposing the end products of labor while concealing mm. the difficult tasks that, in, that sort of in, uh, incur this veneer of what gets termed good service is really obviously problematic or it's something that we don't really see the good service means that no one can be heard of or no one can be seen 
How did you actually produce the film? Because, you know, like, just on a practical level, how, how did you make this? Because I, I think anyone listening will probably imagine mm, it's not going to be a film a hotel is thrilled to be part of. How, how did this happen? How did you make it? It actually took about six months of calling unions. Uh, so American unions unite here, being the biggest one in America. And, you know, there's a union, of course, representing hotel service workers. And even that was a very, very difficult conversation to have. You know, the exposure of someone or the or the potential exposure of a hotel. Um, the, even though the narrative I was trying to kind of push forward was not necessarily let's look at the um, the dirt that you're sweeping underneath beds and so on, or the or the, mm. the sort of bad labor practices that you're hiding. It became a very difficult back and forth conversation, whereby actually I had um, a lawyer try and negotiate uh, terms of language that would be used in terms of criticism. And in the end, mm. after kind of six months of calling around, I called where I currently teach at the University of Buffalo. There's a really kind of really very beautiful, very peculiar hotel called the Inn Buffalo off Elmwood. Okay. It's a historically odd hotel. It's very, very um, luxurious and yet it's kind of on a quiet street. But people like, for example, Margaret Atwood, um, whenever she visits Buffalo, oh. believe it or not, is constantly staying there so she stayed in the suite uh, I was told that I stayed in and she was once writing part of her book in the dining room and asked a nearby doctor how would you kill someone um, without anyone knowing about it and he sort of significantly responded using this drug and she sort of uh, much to the hotel's owner was sort of saying well no this is really incredibly boring you're a doctor come up with something more interesting <laughs> the doctor sighing trying to get on with his dinner oh god it's bloody atwood again <laughs> but i say this hotel i say this with the hotel kind of within 10 minutes of a phone call um one of the senior managers were like yep we're in we're happy to do this there's nothing to hide we're really mm. proud of the work we do and not least for the for the sake of the I can't mention um, the housekeeper's name, but of course they were proud. She I've never seen someone work so hard over those eight hours than the film the the film that I saw unfolded, including kind of. I mean, I don't want to go into uh, a lot of details, but there were lots of gendered conversations happening while watching the unedited footage that actually made me as a woman incredibly uncomfortable to witness and having her bat them away like it was, you know, the standard everyday, um, you know, thing that women or, or people of color have to deal with every day. And that these kinds of uh, marginalized conversations that happen in the workplace, that was the most difficult thing to kind of witness mm. while looking at this alongside the kind of very, um, sort of arduous work that comes up over and over again with you know scrubbing toilets and so on um but the hotel came in agreement and were honestly brilliant i mean nothing was disrupted uh, throughout their day the way that it was made was actually made on a gopro <laughs> because mm. a camera a full-size camera would have been too heavy so she actually strapped it to the front of her um 
head and it was sort of resting between her eyes. Mm. So she had this kind of uh, strapped on, not a strap on, <laughs> but a strapped on device uh, between her eyes and a mic attached to her. And I had to change the battery every hour. So we had to go and sort of find her, change the battery, cut out those sections of the battery and keep going. But I mean, there were so, there were so many technical issues like overheating problems with GoPros. They're not meant to last eight hours. So sort of 3D printing heat sinks so that the battery wouldn't overheat. Um, designing ways that it could cool down from her walking through fridges and so on. So it was a really kind of strangely orchestrated event. Had you always intended that this was going to be that GoPro? Because it's a really distinctive thing, right, to give that perspective. It's almost a sort of first-person video game type aesthetic to it. Or originally were you thinking, oh, well, maybe it will be filmed in a different way? Because watching it, I must admit, I thought, oh, well, that's always, that clearly was the point to offer that perspective but it was interesting then when you said yeah you know a camera wouldn't have been possible did you consider filming it in other ways the thing is filming it where it's not attached to her body again disembodies the idea that it's it's again a disconnect from the labor itself the idea Mm. that she had to lug this thing around you see so that the camera's pointed down for those that that want to sort of have a look at the project it's pointed down at her hands So you can constantly see what she's touching. But even if she has a swig of water, it's sort of, you know, it's really important that it it sits on her body and that she is laboriously dragging this thing around. And not only for reasons that were kind of have a coded significance, but there are so many films, you know, artists like Sophie Cowell, uh, who performed as a cleaner, who was looking at... Uh, people's belongings in rooms to the Rem Cool House. Um, I don't think it, it wasn't Rem Cool House that made the film, but it was a a film that was in set in a Rem Cool House house, and it was following the cleaner, and it kind of really disembodied the la- the the labouring of the cleaner that it was filming, and it kind of made it a comedy. And actually, I found it. While it was sort of twee, um, and those listening might disagree with me, it, it sort of really is a separate narrative or notion altogether. And it, it really mattered to me that that it was a part of a, a, a part of her efforts, I suppose. How did you handle the editing of this film and decisions as to, one, it, it's just a mammoth task, right? That's a lot of material to digest and put together. But I, I imagine lots of ethical considerations as well about what you show, what you include, what you don't. Did you did you keep it very tight? And yes, this is this is almost um, the exact just recorded of those eight hours. Or, or have you made editing decisions that change it around and alter it in any way? I normally edit something to death, almost like you know the sort of designer's way of constantly working on something to trying to make something perfect whereas this is the only time I've thought well no actually I want it to be fairly raw but also what do you edit down from to become eight hours mm. you know would have they'd have to be 16 hours of footage so the only thing we really edited I added, um, I animated parts of her face because she didn't want to be seen. So when she looks in a mirror in the film, it's completely blurred. Mm. 
which mm. at the time sounded like a great idea, but there's so many mirrors in the hotel, I had to go through <laughs> painstaking footage of animating where blurriness would come into effect. Mm. But also there was a halo effect on the film. So um, I'm sure those that are listening and, and maybe Ollie, you might have seen being John Malkovich. I have, yeah. So the scene in which one goes into Malkovich's subconscious, you're sort of drawn into this kind of tube umbilical cord that then sits yes. into his eyes as, as you slide down this hole on the office of, of, of the Merton Plumber building. And I sort of wanted to refer back to that almost in that, again, this embodies in her and not necessarily from the outside. I didn't want it to be we are necessarily the the observer but perhaps we're co-observing something mm. um, and i think that was really important but but not only that again just not to disconnect from it you know something being a common everyday thing i i really didn't want it to to become two different things and as a final question have you had reactions to the film so far i mean it's an interesting thing this idea of does it Will it put someone to sleep? How do they engage with it? How do they react to it? And clearly that's going to take quite a while to gather the data and see how different people respond to it. But have you had any early impressions? The curators have sent me multiple clips in the gallery of people sleep who had fallen asleep with their headphones on and they kind of dropped their keys on the ground. So, so far... <laughs> It's been good, but I mean, it's very difficult to say the whole show is about sleep and it's sort of designed and, and set up to sort of induce sleep to some degree. I mean, the topic is sleep. It's not, that's false. It's not designed to put one to sleep, the whole exhibition. But it has, I mean, from what I understand, in a gallery space, it has worked to some degree, but also it's really tricky because the context I'd really like to see it in is in hotels. Um, and it doesn't mean to say that it could be screened in a big hotel chain. I mean, I think, I think what's really important to note when I started this work and that I sort of touched on before is that it became, rather than a cynical look or a look that was highly critical, actually, as the time went on, it actually became about care and understanding the practice of care and the labour of care which I never thought I would, you would ever hear me say. Uh, <laughs> it's not something I've ever really considered in relationship to design, uh, believe it or not, because of course the litany, the litany of demands of design mm. and the, the idea that a designer should quote unquote care has never really appealed to me because of, you know, the ideas that design uh, meet the needs of the minority and so on is utterly false. But so care has never really crossed my mind. But I think with this, it, it, it's really hard not to care while watching it. And do you have plans to make it more widely available? Is it something which you'd want to upload online so people can stream this or, or see it? Or, or, or do, you, do you think it's going to remain in, in more controlled exhibition formats for the time being? I'm looking at platforms to see where it might exist. Um, there's similar um, themes in Netflix. So you can watch um, trains running and you can watch fireplaces. But I think the first place I'd really like to show it is the hotel room itself. So I am looking mm. um, for places that are open enough um, to have it shown. 
Well, any hotel owner listeners uh, do get in touch. We can uh, facilitate that. Uh, Alona, thank you so much for joining us on The Crypt and congratulations on an extraordinary project. Thanks so much, Ollie. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much to Ilona for that illuminating interview. This has been The Crypt. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us before our next episode, you can email us at thecrypt at designojournal.com and you can find us on social media at at designojournal. And um, this episode would not have been possible without support from Convene. Uh, we recorded it at 22 Bishopsgate and thank you to everyone on the Convene team for their really kind support. And if you want to find out more about working in Convene's workplaces in London, they've got fabulous AC during this heatwave, uh, you can visit convene.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Crypt. It was co-hosted by me, Polly Stratford and India Block. It was produced by Effie Hall and edited by Effie Hall and Lara Chapman. All music for The Crit is by Yori Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram, and our logo is by Leonard Rothman.